Welcome to episode number 97 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is a podcast for building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we are talking about lessons learned from two British Columbia sawmill explosions in 2012. And we have on the call to do that, David Murray, Corporate Safety HR and Environment Manager for Gorman Group and Co-Chairperson of the Manufacturing Advisory Group in British Columbia. David, I want to say a big welcome and a big thank you for coming on the Dust Safety Science Podcast today. Thank you, Chris. I feel uh, very honored that you have me on your, your show and um, looking forward to having this discussion with you today. Me as well. And David's background, which I'm going to let him give give a more broad overview of, but he has 15 years experience, over 15 years experience in woodworking industries in BC, various safety coordination, safety manager roles. And where I came across his work besides with the the MAG group, the Manufacturing Advisory Group, was actually an article that he wrote for the Canadian Biomass and Canadian Forest Industries Dust Safety Week. So we did a review of that back in episode 90 of the podcast. And David wrote an article that was titled, Lightning Doesn't Have to Strike, Lessons Learned from the 2012 BC Combustible Dust Explosions. And I was really intrigued when I read the article because it gives a firsthand account of David's experience, he wasn't working at those either of those companies, but his experience in British Columbia wood handling wood processing entries at that time. And he also shared some really kind of key insights that I thought were um, really instrumental for the, the way forward for us in, in industries handling combustible dust. So I shared that in the previous podcast in episode 90, and then I reached out to David after. Um, he actually reached out to, to me to discuss the episode that's a, a slightly different story, um, but we want to reach out to have him talk on that topic, and then we're actually going to record two episodes here. Next week, we're going to have an episode talking about the MAG group and what the the work they've been doing in BC in industries handling combustible dust as well. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the 2012 sawmill explosions in British Columbia, some of the initial reactions from folks like David and, and others in the industry about um, combustible dust safety as it was pushed to the, the forefront to these tragic incidents and then what has happened since then how has the sawmill and related industries in bc been shaped by these tragedies since 2012 so we're gonna go through that in this episode so david i think a great place to just jump in is can you share some of your your background and your current roles in industry sure chris and thank you uh, i've been involved with managing safety since 2006 as a sawmill construction safety coordinator I've held various senior safety positions in the wood products and forestry sectors for uh, about a decade now. Uh, Gorman Group is the company I work for now. It has a very rich history as a multi-generational family-owned specialty wood product manufacturer. I like to call uh, their mills as boutique mills. They're a little bit different than the dimension mills that I've, I've worked for in the past in that they create high value home renovation products, often from the waste or trimmings that you'd typically see in other mill, mills. The company is a major employee in each community we operate. We've established partnerships in each town and city to make each a better place to live. This company is a humble driven business that does all these great things without self-promotion. And I'm, I'm quite proud to work for a company that demonstrates these values. Uh, my primary role since I was hired by Gorman Group about five years ago is leading safety for the business and um, managing the corporate human resources and environment files that have been my responsibility for, for a few years now. 
My safety education has been through the BC Institute of Technology, and um, that led to my Canadian Registered Safety Professional status. And I'm working towards similar educational fundamentals in HR and environment. You mentioned the Manufacturing Advisory Group, I believe, and uh, I've been a member of that uh, group since 2009, and it's chairperson since about uh, December of last year, so not too many months under the, under my belt on that. Um, the Manufacturing Advisory Group, or MAG, is um, a BC Wood Product Manufacturing Safety Association. Um, it's steered by uh, big, bigger company employer CEOs in our industry. There's employer safety representatives, and it's facilitated by the BC Forest Safety Council. I've also been involved with an employer union safety association named SAFER for almost as many years as I have belonged to the MAG Group. Um, and SAFER is an excellent group that collaborates on safety education and training for our industry. Yeah, thanks for that kind of background, David. And when I read the article for your that you posted for Dust Safety Week, it was one, it was written very well. So you, you did an excellent job there, kind of making it so that it, it really took the reader, made them feel like they were there when these sawmill explosions happened. So can you kind of talk through what what happened in 2012 with these these sawmill explosions and maybe just the, the the process that went on there? Yes, I can. And thanks for the compliment around the article. I was uh, hoping that that was how it was reaching the audience um, with the experiences that was felt by many in the province at the time, particularly those in positions similar to mine. Just high level, I guess. In January of 2012, an explosion occurred at Babine Force Products sawmill injuring many and uh, tragically killing two employees. Uh, A few months later in April, a Lakeland Mills sawmill exploded and killed two employees and injured many others. Industry stakeholders such as myself were caught completely off guard to these two tragic events. Uh, The first explosion came truly as a complete surprise. And the second explosion proved those who believe the first one was an isolated event wrong. Wood mill employers, employees, regulators, associations such as the union and safety groups all had to react to what happened. And mostly in an autonomous fashion. There were a lot of confusion about the cause and what to do about it and finger pointing. Investigations were shrouded until they were completed so that conclusions weren't jumped to and um, on the regulator side to preserve the evidence for potential blame. Uh, The employer group under the MAG pulled together a combustible dust task force. It included a steering committee of the major CEOs um, and the union president. A technical working group compiled from the company safety experts led by my mentor, I'll, I'll say, Kerry Douglas and supplemented combustible dust experts from the insurance brokerages. We hired as a group, Ken Higginbottom, who is a former industry executive as our project leader and as the communication conduit between the steering committee and the tech group and with regulators and the media. Uh, The major output from the MAG combustible dust task force was the MAG dust audit and its system. Uh, Behind the audit's curtain was a scalable combustible dust program that was designed with the necessary training, infrastructure, and other control measures to mitigate combustible dust risk. Uh, To be a MAG member company today, you need to implement and maintain that MAG dust audit. Yeah, we're going to, 
in the next interview, which will come out next week if you're listening to this live or if you're listening in the future, just press next when this one's done and you'll you'll get to it. Um, we're going to talk about the MAG group more, the type of projects they've taken on since then, and what some of their priorities are today, and, and just kind of some of the, the work that they've done there. We will include in the show notes links to the WorkSafe BC um, reports on the sawmill explosions at Burns Lake, at Bean Forest Products, and um, in Prince George at the, the Lake and Mill Sawmill there. This interview, I want to kind of dive into what, what uh, Dave was talking about in his article, but I do want to mention something here. So if you want the technical details, we'll include links in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 97 for this incident. But David said something that's really important to keep in mind here earlier in his notes about Gorman Group, where he said that these companies tend to be the largest employers in these communities. And we've actually had this happen here in Nova Scotia too, and when we had our Westray coal mine explosions, and the Westray mine was the largest employer in the the, uh, the town of, of Plymouth when it happened. And these are severe, large-scale tragedies that um, I, I imagine, David, you can, you can jump in, are still um, felt in those communities today, and, and the impact are still felt today. So they're very impactful, especially when they have in these smaller kind of communities. So the, the part I want to dive into, and the part that actually gave me, I don't know if it gave, I'd say it gave me chills, actually, when I read it in your article, was um, there's a paragraph here, and I'll actually read it and then get you to dive into it a bit. Um, but you, you talk about the explosion happened, then the second explosion happened, and then everyone sort of started digging in. Well, what is this thing called combustible dust? What is, you know, what's needed to protect against it? And the, the, the line here is that my initial reaction to discovering what was needed to protect against a dust explosion was that of incredulity. No dust more than two pennies thick anywhere. No dust on any motors, electro boxes, or anything that generates heat. Full containment of suction and suction systems on everything that produces dust. These standards were not common in sawmills, and to make them happen would require industry and stakeholders to undergo the bold collective step change that, that didn't even really seem possible at the time. When I read that, the reason it gave me chills is I hear that about every industry <laughs> that suffers a dust explosion because it just seems so foreign that it could happen. And then the, 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 the number and degree of changes seem quite, quite difficult, I guess. So I wanted to get Dave to share this viewpoint a bit, dig into it a bit, and then even talk about how things have changed in, in, in BC and whether or not it seems possible to move towards safety with even keeping these in mind. So I hope I didn't steal any of your, your, I guess, thunder on reading the, the paragraph there, but can you share just a bit of how you and the industry viewed this challenge after digging into these requirements around combustible dust? Yes, absolutely, Chris. Um, I'll, I'll back it up with um, a couple of further points. Um, bear in mind, the risk of fires in wood mills have always been well-known fires. <laughs> Since the beginning, addressing fire risk has been the number one priority in mill safety programs. If I look back in history, it was uh, it, it truly was the, the top priority and remains so in, in mills about fires. The control measures have become increasingly more sophisticated over time from the original water buckets and fire extinguishers to uh, site-wide sprinkler systems and heat detecting devices. Uh, dispersible wood dust in the air was recognized as being a hazard for many years too. Uh, these evolved from old ward stories like a welder talking about the time she accidentally brushed some sawdust off a ledge while welding and seeing a small deflagration uh, to a spark detection control device being activated to prevent a bag house explosion. 
And these things happened. At the turn of the century, most airborne dusk risk prevention was focused on the respiratory hygiene hazard, not the risk of it exploding. And the concern was measured by what was actually seen in the air, as opposed to looking for mass accumulations of the dust on elevated surfaces. And certainly the magnitude to what could happen and eventually did in 2012 was not predicted. Uh, once beginning the research into understanding the problem that we had in 2012 and how to address it, it truly was something that I felt was going to be near impossible to achieve. Even my first drafts of a combustible dust mitigation program after the first explosion, uh, I adjusted the level of dust to a, you know, quote unquote, more reasonable dust depth allowance of a quarter inch from the NFPA's one eighth of an inch standard. Even that quarter inch depth sounded ridiculous. One has to remember that most sawmill machinery were uh, uncontained craters of high volumes of fine secondary wood dust that collected everywhere in the upper reaches of each facility. The engineered controls for removing sawdust was at a macro level, uh, conveyors underneath the machine centers hauling away large particle chips, essentially. Cleanup was weighted towards shoveling leaked piles of this material from around conveyor tail spools. Only the highest speed machines that produced a great volume of that fine dust had dust extraction equipment like bag houses and cyclones. So uh, it, it definitely was a, um, a challenger, a mountain that we didn't think that uh, it was really possible to climb, Chris. I appreciate you sharing that again, because it's pretty common. I think when we had the Imperial sugar refinery explosions, the sugar industry specifically really had the, you know, the same sort of thing happen. Um, metal dust explosions, coal mining, basically every industry that generates a powdered material. Once we have these incidents, then it's sort of a scramble to figure out what needs to be done, what order it can be done in, um, what's practical. And because it ends up being a step change requirement, because you don't want to relive what just happened, then it does seem uh, you know, very difficult to do. But what I've been impressed with in, in British Columbia, and you, the people who listen to this podcast probably heard me talk about before, is that there is heavy involvement and communication and, and collaboration between the regulators, between the industry associations like MAG Group and others, and the industry members there to, to tackle some of these problems. So I guess we've, we've really outlined, we, we've, we've outlined a pretty bleak position here, David. You know, the explosions happened and it seems impossible, but what's happened since then and how has there been able to make headway in terms of combustible dust safety since 2012? Yeah, I'll say that uh, the impossible was made possible. I would say that the combustible dust risk in wood product manufacturers in BC have the necessary control measures in place to prevent an explosion from happening. I can list off a, a bunch of things, the required assessments, the required training, the required level and type of cleanup the required inspections, the required stakeholder corroboration, the required regulatory consultation and oversight, the required control devices, the required audits, the required investigations, the required reporting are being done. And it's a long list and it's not exhaustive, but these are all things that need to be at, uh, in place and at a certain level in order to actually prevent a, uh, an explosion from occurring. So then what were some of the kind of first steps then? I mean, you, you mentioned that you were implementing and working on your own with the various companies you were working with at that time, sort of planning and uh, documentation and, and 
you know, it was just a blanket. Okay, we're we're doing everything now. We're putting explosion protection on everything. We are host keeping one eighth of an inch everywhere. Or is it more of you know an incremental process where we added things over time? Good question. So. Um, I'll, I'll say that we, we initially started with sharing a combustible dust mitigation program amongst ourselves. Um, we, were, we were waiting for whatever more information we can get out of the investigations that were occurring. Um, and in, in um, respectful communication with the, the Babin Sawmill um, group on what they could provide us for information. Um, we had to make a bunch of assumptions and uh, many of those assumptions were true, or at least the, the measures that we were moving towards were addressing the, the ultimate causes behind the, the initial explosion. I'll say that following the second one, um, that um, I'll speak of a couple of other <laughs> uh, actions that were occurring from other stakeholders. So regarding the re- regulators, uh, which were WorkSafe BC the BC Safety Authority, uh, now Technical Safety BC, and the Office of the Fire Commissioner um, in BC. They issued several blanket orders for BC sawmills to implement, um, and each were designed to address the findings from their investigations. WorkSafe BC began several phases of targeted combustible dust inspections. The BC Safety Authority required a hazardous locations assessment that categorized the dust risk throughout facilities. The BC Fire Commissioner required fire department inspections of all sawmills and eventually the creation and implementation of a fire safety plan. The regulatory trio formed with industry and the union, the Fire Inspection Prevention Initiative, or FIPI, which centered around developing fire and explosion prevention training. And that was led by WorkSafe BC's Ray Rock. I would say that that was probably one of the initial um, collaborative uh, initiatives between those stakeholders that I mentioned, the regulator, the union, the employer representatives. And um, I think that uh, some of the products that they developed were were quite great. Yeah, thank you for sharing that and jumping in. I think we kind of dove into some of the lessons learned there, but are there any other sort of key lessons learned through these incidents that, uh, you know, we can take forward and, and keep in mind today? Yeah, I have a couple here. Um, and I kind of touch on them in the article that you mentioned earlier on in this. The combustible dust explosions in 2012 were not predicted. That's a fact. Um, but I'll suggest that they were not able to be predicted due to how our industry's safety system was structured and how its stakeholders' relationships were organized at the time. Truly to prevent similar catastrophes from occurring, the safety system must measure and prioritize the prediction of potential serious injury and fatality events. Uh, The stakeholders that run this this safety system must build and maintain trusting, effective, and cooperative relationships, conducive of the shared goal to keep workers safe. The second lesson that I kind of take away from this is that complacency is almost like combustible dust, an insidious danger, which played a significant role over the years that the explosion pentagram evolved in the industry facilities. Complacency is also human behavior that causes people to convince themselves that a terrible event cannot happen to them. So the actions needing to be done to stop the terrible event from occurring are actually not happening. 
To prevent similar catastrophes from occurring, the safety system and its stakeholders must be aware of and address the complacency factor. So you had three there, um, and rent, the first one was on leading indicators or moving from you know more lagging metrics to leading metrics. I think we're going to talk about this more in, in the, the next episode, both the work the MAG group has been doing. But you highlight two other important ones there, trust between stakeholders. And this one is, is, is really critical because if you're in the place where the company thinks that the regulators are just out to get them, you know, even even things like if the regulator is sending a different inspector every time, you know, maybe they should send the same inspector so they can get a, a working relationship up between that company and, and that inspector. But if there's not that that level of trust, then it can be quite difficult. Um, that level of trust takes years, I think, to to happen. Um, at first, maybe adversarial, but the power if you can get to that place where you have a level of trust, you know that uh, everyone's looking out for everyone's best interests then you can kind of move forward. So that was the, the second one, trust between stakeholders. And then number three is the complacency. And this is really every fire, every explosion, the clock gets reset. Every tragedy will say the clock gets reset. And that counts down every day, every month, every year. Natural tendency of, of just humans, um, I think it's probably a safety factor when we live in herds or something, is that you you get less scared of low frequency, high severity events. It's just the the nature of that kind of thing happening. You start to look up for more about stubbing your toe and slips, trips and falls. And you that complacency just gets reset every time. So every time you have a major tragedy, the clock counts down. Days, months, years, decades, until another major tragedy comes. And even actually small incidents and fires and explosions can actually make it accelerate that timeline because every time you see one of those and somebody doesn't get hurt, then it may even increase the the level of complacency. That's not going to happen here. I've never I've been here forty years. That's never happened. There could have been operators working at Imperial Sugar said, "I've been here for forty years. This has never been an issue," and they would have been telling the truth until they till they till they weren't. So yeah, I think complacency is a really hard one. I hope this podcast is helping with that. I hope having folks on like yourself that have lived through this experience is helping with that. But it's actually a challenge on the human psychology of risk that we really need to lean into the social sciences of it to say, how do we, as a community, keep the, I don't want to say fear, but keep that sense of, uh, of susceptibility in place. And I've heard it called a really good term by Dr. Ivan Papaliti, which is slipping my memory right now, but we'll have him on the podcast maybe to talk about it, but it's a uh, constructive paranoia, I think is what he called it or something along those lines, but, you know, always being, yeah, I think it might have been constructive paranoia or something similar, but that's you know necessary to avoid complacency. And you see it implemented in, say, the nuclear industry or industries where a large loss incident can cause devastating effects, just like a you know large scale dust explosion. You need to maintain that level of uh, skepticism and and that to move forward. So I think those are key lessons learned from this incident. I we will include links in the show notes set. Um, dustsafetyscience.com slash 97 to this Canadian Biomass Magazine article that David wrote. Um, we'll have his you know way to contact him in there. Before we close out this episode, David, is there anything else you want to leave the the listeners off with about combustible dust safety or wood handling industries or just anything in general from your experience? Uh, I don't have too much more than what I've uh, discussed so far, Chris, but um, I, I just want to reemphasize how important it is to um, you know, touching on the, your complacency messaging that you you are leaving this off with 
is that um, what I found was that 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 feeling of this this won't happen to me, even with the sawmill explosions, um, whether it was bordering either the provinces or states, it was uh, it was like there was an invisible invisible barricade between. You know, it, was, it must be only BC sawmills um, that this could happen. And the rigor behind the activity following those um, declined the further out from the province of BC that uh, um, one would go. Having a, working for, at the time, a, a multinational company, I recognized that um, some of our U.S. Uh, operations and uh, across Canada, outside of BC, it was it was more of a struggle like the there was empathy towards the situation in bc but it was from afar and this you know the same sort of criteria that could cause a dust explosion existed in those operations um so i think a key takeaway that i i would like those listeners to uh to consider is that um um, it, it truly can happen. It, it, is, it does come down to science. <laughs> and if, if you check off the boxes for, for, for instance, the explosion pentagram, um, you are at risk. And um, the, the good news, the silver lining to this is that um, you can learn from past catastrophes and uh, ensure that your facility and your employees are, are safe from, from that happening. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I'm happy you brought up that uh, invisible barrier because i i remember in episode 90 of the podcast i talked about that quite a bit and i can't quite find my notes here on on exactly what it was but it's it's there like that's a a real thing between and it's it's uh follows abstract man-made borders so you know it's a geography thing that won't happen in my province or my country Um, it's also an industry thing that won't happen in my in this industry but it can happen in that industry Um, it's also a facility thing that you know, won't happen in this facility. There's all these sort of imaginary borders that we just draw up in our mind because it's dust. And, you know, the dust is the the physics and chemistry of what happened. Don't care if you're on one side of an imaginary line or the other. Um, it, it can and is reproducible in, in uh, multiple places and multiple facilities across the world. So I can't quite remember the, the wording that you used, but I'm happy you brought that part up. And uh, I'd encourage the listener to check out that episode 90 of the podcast, but but more so even this article that you wrote for Canadian Biomass. Um, and again, we haven't touched on the technical details too much of the sawmill explosions, but those are both available in um, some very detailed reports released by, by WorkSafe BC. So we'll include the links to that in the show notes as well. So David, I want to say thank you for coming on. Um, I want to say thank you for sharing your experience uh, really during this you know tragic time. And to, to be brave enough to come out and say things like in the article, like we didn't even think this was possible, but it was over time with a collaborative effort, with a, an effort where we had different stakeholders that are coming together to make this possible um, and to make change in the, the sawmill industries in, in BC. Thank you very much, Chris. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today about this. Thank you, David. And we're going to have David on, as I said, in the next podcast episode as well, talking about the Manufacturing Advisory Group uh, MAG within British Columbia and what they've been doing over the last decade in relation to combustible dust and safety out there as well. So thanks, David. I look forward to talking again soon. Thank you. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and David Murray, Corporate Safety, HR, and Environment Manager for Gorman Group and Co-Chairperson of the Manufacturing Advisory Group based out of British Columbia. 
We're talking about lessons learned from two British Columbia sawmill explosions in 2009, in 2012, rather. These were the Babine Forest Products sawmill explosion in January of 2012 and the Lakeland Mills sawmill explosion in April of 2012, both with loss of lives during the explosion and, and dozens of, of injuries that happened as well. And this was all spurred, as I mentioned the outside of the interview, by an article that I read and following the work of MAG in British Columbia. But mostly this article that I read that David wrote for Dust Safety Week for Canadian Biomass, talking about his experience about right after the first explosion happened, what was going through their minds then. Then the second explosion happened. Okay, well, this must be a systematic issue and digging into it. And then this realization that uh, to, to make the facility safe and to avoid this and bring it down to a a reasonably low level required basically an overhaul of how they did things in regards to future dust cleanup, in regards to dust collection, with regards to explosive safety devices, and then the challenges of going through and doing that and the successes that they've had with uh, with their community doing that today. The lessons learned that we talked about, we really covered three here. Looking at leading metrics instead of lagging metrics. Um, we're guilty of this as well. We run the Combustible Less Instant Database, which is a big collection of lagging metrics. Um, I wish we could run the combustible dust near miss database and maybe someday we will. And then, you know, the combustible dust flagged for above the fugitive dust levels database, but we'll we'll try to work farther up the leading indicator scale. But we're gonna talk about the, bit of that in the next podcast episode as well. We talk about trust between stakeholders. And this one is probably well, it's probably the second hardest to be honest, but it's pretty hard. But it takes time and also takes a concerted effort to have groups come together and make this sort of thing happen. And then the hardest one is this complacency. So every time a explosion happens or every time even you can do an awareness training and make someone aware of the potential hazards, that clock is reset and they're normalizing risk every day that something doesn't happen. Every time something, a near miss happens and nothing wrong or um, seriously wrong goes wrong, then, then you know a couple more ticks go off that complacency scale. So we really need to work together as a community to figure out how do we keep that level of, again, I'm not sure if this is the right word, but constructive paranoia high enough that we avoid letting things slip to the place where we, we have a, a large scale incident or even an incident that can uh, you know injure and, and workers and, and hurt the facility. So that's it for this week. We, again, will have ways to contact David in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 97 for this episode. We'll have all the links that we mentioned um, in the episode as well. I appreciate you listening. Um, I hope you have a safe and productive week ahead. I want to thank you for everything you're doing for industries handling combustible dust around the world, keeping them safe every day. Thank you.